and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. A reading from Scripture on this day comes from the letter to the Colossians. Listen for the word of God. For in Christ, all things are created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. And through Christ God reconciles all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That is a word from God for us, the people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. Today's message is called Theology for Democracy. These reflections were triggered by my 14-year-old son, who has been saying something of late, and it's bothering me. He says a lot of things that bother me, let me be honest. But there's one thing in particular. He keeps saying we have to get religion out of politics. Amen. I get where he's coming from. He and I were listening to the radio in the car on the afternoon of the Dobbs decision. We heard an interview with the former governor of Mississippi, a Christian, who was jubilant about the Supreme Court's verdict. The interviewer asked the former governor what he would say to women who now face unwanted pregnancies with very few choices. And he responded, I would first say you need to kneel and pray to God and have God, call him him, have him open your eyes and come into your heart and realize this is your child, and you're about to take that all away for your convenience. Maybe I was in a bad mood that day. That was one of the ugliest lines I've ever heard a politician speak. The question he was asked is, what do you say to a woman who is in this hard, hard situation? He showed no sympathy. He showed no interest in seeing the world through another person's eyes. His view when it came to abortion did not have room for dissenting voices. God had told him clearly what is right, so others must be wrong. This is not the politics of compromise. It is not the politics of mutual forbearance. This is the politics of theocracy, rule by religion. His solution for unwanted pregnancy was unwanted religious conversion. I get it when my son says he thinks we'd be better off if religion got out of politics. On this 4th of July weekend, as we prepare to celebrate, I hope you will celebrate the 246th 
birthday, maybe, give or take, of the world's oldest continuing democracy, we find ourselves in a very strange moment, I think. This 50-year-old white evangelical political project has accumulated enough power and bent the norms and rules of politics enough to allow a small minority to make laws for our whole nation. This most recent Supreme Court term brought us a taste of this new agenda. It includes Christian prayer in public schools. It includes taxpayer dollars for Christian schools that teach queer kids that they are evil. And of course, it includes men who have more government protection for their firearms than women have for their reproductive organs. The strangeness of this moment is that it was all made possible by white evangelical Christians' alliance with a most unlikely former president. White evangelical Christians have been so hungry for power that they are willing to drop all coherent theological convictions in order to grab that president's coattails with both hands. Now, it was always clear that this former president had a caustic style. He was eager to pit Americans against one another. But what became clear over time is that that former president loathed the rule of law itself. That sacred agreement that, that has held our society together for these 246 years, he loathed democracy. He could not abide by the idea that it is the people who rule the land, not him. The former president orchestrated an armed coup against our government when he failed to win re-election, and white evangelical Christians kept on supporting him. This moment, as we stand back and look at it, is a vexing convergence of theocracy, government by God, aligning with autocracy, ruled by one person who seeks unlimited power. I think it's a scary moment for America. It is yet another test for our democracy. We have faced tests before. Abraham Lincoln referred to the greatest of all tests at Gettysburg when he said, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal can long endure. We know from hindsight that our nation did endure, but only barely, and not without tragic cost. For though our democracy endured, it did so at the expense, yet again, of black and brown Americans who were condemned by white America to another hundred years of exclusion from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are fooling ourselves, I think, if we take our current threats to democracy too lightly. Now, I know we're polite Presbyterians. We want to believe that everyone can just get along with each other. I want to believe that, too. But if you listen to the conversations that are happening far away from Decatur, 
If you note the willingness of many white Christian Americans to buy into a fantasy of their own victimhood and to buy into that fantasy with revolutionary fervor, and if you observe how important it is for them to arm themselves against their so-called oppressors, it is not hard to imagine another civil war in our future. So what I want to ask you all who are gathered in this place today is what should we be doing as the church of Jesus Christ in this moment? At our session retreat in April, as we were talking together, your leaders were talking together about what our church is called to be and do in this particular moment, one of your wise elders observed, we have been a church of dreamers. And I thought he was about to make a compliment, so I was feeling pretty good. And then he said, but the world is on fire. What, he wanted to know, are we prepared to do about it? I had a conversation a few weeks ago with another member of our congregation who's asking similar questions about what kind of church we are called to be in this present moment. This person has deep, deep loving relationships with folks who are much further right politically and theologically. She said to me, when our world and our institutions are breaking apart, I want the church, I want my church to remind me that God holds all things together. She was channeling this vision from Colossians of the cosmic Christ who holds all things together. Whether we can see it or not, we have to believe that God is working to bind us together as one. Well, shouldn't we then be a congregation that does our very best to make space for all of God's people under this roof. Maybe to make that kind of space, I need to be quiet about politics from the pulpit, not let my private convictions as a citizen affect the proclamation from this pulpit. What if the prophetic call to us as NDPC at this moment were not to join in the Civil War, not to take sides, but to be a literal space where reconciliation is our highest aim? Mary Anona sent me an essay this week about the unlikely friendship between an Arkansas congressman who for many years was the mouthpiece of the National Rifle Association in Congress and a CDC researcher whose life's work was gun violence research. That man had tried for years to get Congress to pay attention to the data about gun violence as they set policy, and the congressman almost single-handedly stood in the way. But there's a moment in this story when the two men are fresh out of a heated congressional hearing, and the congressman does something kind of extraordinary. He invites the researcher to come into his office at the Capitol, and the researcher, as he's telling the story, pauses. Should he go in? Should he meet this man who is his enemy face to face? 
He does. He goes in to the congressman's office, and that meeting, as the story unfolds, is the beginning of a friendship between these two men that lasts for decades after and ends only when the researcher offers the eulogy at the congressman's funeral. The deep truth embedded in that story and the reason we need to hear stories like this again and again and at this moment is that there is always more that we human beings share in common than divides us. We all love our children deeply. We all want their future to be better than the present. We all want to enjoy peace and prosperity and safety and freedom. But for us to find out how much we do share in common with people on the other side politically from us, somebody has to be willing to take a risk to invite that perceived enemy in. We have to be able to listen, listen to each other, and talk with one another and make space for one another in our lives. This is not some can't we just all get along stuff. This is a theological conviction of ours that every human being is beloved in God's sight. And even, pardon my language, when those beloveds piss us off, we are to love them even more when they do so because Jesus said so and he modeled it by inviting tax collectors and zealots into his inner circle. Now, at the same time that we all commit to making courageous connections with others who do not think in the same ways that we do, I still hope and expect that you all will not sit idly by well, one small group of white Christian Americans tries to overthrow democracy and tries to revoke constitutional and voting rights and steals itself for what they believe will be an armed holy war. We cannot sit on the political sidelines while this happens. Democracy itself is at stake. And democracy, I want to remind you this morning, is a theological project. Democracy is an expression of something that we Christians hold dear. It is an expression of beloved community. Remember how our democracy came to be in the first place? It came to be through religion. Protestantism emerged at a moment in history when people were sick of unaccountable leaders. Martin Luther and John Calvin and so many others risked their lives to reform the church because the church was modeling bad theology about how to make decisions. The reformers understood something that we still understand. God's will is less likely to emerge through one person in a pointy hat or a red tie than through the will of all the people. The Reformation moved power from the hands of a few to the hands of the many. 
That's why we organize our own church the way we do and elect our own leaders the way we do. Because our God is a grassroots God, not a top-down God. God's will is discerned through the will of the people. Democracy trusts the will of the people. And because it does, it is a deeply theological project. A second essential affirmation about democracy follows from the first. Democracy is the system of government that protects us from the sin of thinking that we always know the right answer. Democracy, because it is a system that draws a wide circle around the we in we the people, keeps us in conversation with each other. It keeps us accountable to each other. If it were just up to us, we would draw the circle of the we more narrowly. But that's theologically naive, right? Read the New Testament again, where the Spirit of God is always drawing the circle wider in surprising ways. God is always locating God's revelation outside of the circle where we think it should be. The pregnancy of Mary, the Syrophoenician woman's testimony, the conversion of Saul, the Ethiopian eunuch, I could go on and on. The revelation to Peter, who, who God bless him, finally seems to tune in to what God is doing and says, God shows no partiality to any person. The New Testament reads like one long meditation on God's crazy love for all people. So if we start thinking for a minute that we've got a handle on God, that we know God's will once and for all, if we draw the circle just around us, it's a sign that we've surely lost our way, politically and theologically. The writer Anne Lamott put it the best when she said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people you do. We have to draw the circle wide. We have to have the widest possible understanding of who we are. God, if the Bible is to be trusted, and I do think it is to be trusted, God constantly surprises us by revealing God's will for human life in the people that we wanted to draw outside of our circle. And the widest political circle we know is called democracy. Democracy is big, it's diverse, it's inclusive, it's messy, it's contentious, but it's also faithful and sometimes it's even holy. We do not, I think, need to get religion out of politics. Good theology builds strong democracy, and strong democracy nurtures good theology. We who follow Jesus, and I assume because you're here today, you feel called to follow Jesus. We who follow Jesus are called to love each other. And politics is just one more place in our lives where we're called to obey the commandment to love. 
Politics is this space that we share with others where we work out together our convictions about who God made us human beings to be and what we are here for. In the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote one of the great theological affirmations in all of history when he wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He went on that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among people deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's a theological declaration if I've ever heard one. The irony that you surely know is that Thomas Jefferson didn't believe what he wrote. But Frederick Douglass did. And Susan B. Anthony did. And along the way, so many other followers of Jesus have worked and prayed and organized and worshipped in ways that have drawn the circle of democracy ever wider to include all of us under the great umbrella of we the people. I hope that we as a congregation in the days to come will choose to stand in that long line of Christians who have lived into the hope that America will one day, in the words of Dr. King, rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. Oh, let America be America again the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where everyone, everyone, everyone is free. Let the people say amen. Lines were drawn when no flags flew.